crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigal. I'm coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel. When I'm not recording this program or writing for Watch Jerusalem, I also get to teach a history of ancient Israel class. This is a college-level class that goes to Herbert W. Armstrong College, of which I'm a faculty member, but there are no students here in Jerusalem right now. Uh, we normally bring over students when we're, we are participating on an archaeological dig with Dr. Elot Mazar in Hebrew University somewhere in the City of David or on the Ophel just below the southern wall of the Temple Mount. But since there's no students here, it's just me, and instead of teaching to nobody, I do get to teach live to one of our campuses, uh, the one over in the United Kingdom at Edstone, which is just north of Stratford-upon-Avon. And then that that program is, or that uh, class is recorded and then sent back to our main campus in Edmond, Oklahoma. And what we're covering inside that class right now is really interesting. It's one of my favorite aspects of this class. We're covering covering the exilic period, and we've got the Bible, or the post-exilic period, I should put should say. We've got the Bible on one side, which does discuss so many details about the empires that took the Judeans or the Jews into captivity and those that would send them back. And then we also have secular history and quite a long lot of it. That's when you really start having a lot of historians writing all these details down of the of the Persian Empire, uh, so that we can put the boat them both together. We can look at what modern day or more ancient historians, secular historians, I should say, uh, speak about, and then put the biblical narrative right by it and see how it slots in so perfectly uh, to to the to the secular history. And specifically now we're talking about how the Jews were allowed to return back to uh, their homeland, their ancestral homeland. This was in no doubt to the Persian officials. The Persians, of course, didn't take the Jews into captivity. That was, that was the Babylonians. But then 70 years after that initial uh, conquest, or initial taking of some captives into Babylonian captivity, 70 years after that, the Persians under Cyrus overtook the Babylonian Empire. And so then you had a lot of these Jews that were inside the now Persian Empire, but they weren't in Judea. They weren't in their ancestral homeland. They were exiles. And Cyrus, the, the first king, Cyrus the Great, uh, first king of this massive uh, Persian empire, decreed that the Jews could go home. He decreed that the Jews could go back if they so desired and build up the temple, build up the province of Yehud in a really benevolent um, decision, a really benevolent decree. Now, history brings out that he had this policy for not just to the Jews, but for others. The Bible speaks about how God motivated it for the Jews. And it's likely that after that, it was also motivated for, or he also applied that for everybody else. And we have the the Cyrus Cylinder. This sits in the British Museum. It's quite, it's quite small. If you've ever seen a picture of it, you might think it's bigger than it is. But this Cyrus Cylinder is a decree, one of the copies of a decree of Cyrus that allows the Babylonians to go back and, and rebuild, um, rebuild one of their temples. 
And it's really similar to something that the, the Bible records that he gave for the Jews. And that's obviously recorded this decree at the, in the last chapter of the book of Chronicles and also the first couple of verses of the book of Ezra. And as we're covering in this class, um, we're covering this history where the Jews are just treated with this great amount of favor by successive Persian emperors, whether we're talking about Cyrus, Darius, uh, Xerxes or Artaxerxes, they're all making decrees for the Jews, whether it's to rebuild uh, the temple, whether it's to beautify the temple, whether it's to allow the temple work to continue, whether it's to allow the wall around Jerusalem to be built. The Persian emperor is the greatest defenders of the Jews and promulgator of Zionism, ancient Zionism, in the ancient world. The Persians are. And so we have that history on one side that that I get to cover in class. And then we have the news. We have current events, current affairs. And since I'm here in Israel, I focus on the Middle East and I am constantly reporting on the modern day Persians. The modern day Persians, the modern, that, that is the nation of Iran today. And the policy that we see from Iran towards the Jews is in diametric opposite or in complete opposite uh, direction than it was by their ancient forefathers. Something's happened. Something's happened in the past two and a a half thousand years uh, to make this change. Now, there are many instances in which the current regime in Iran, which is now celebrating the 40th year of, um, of the regime change in 1979, that was when the uh, Islamic takeover took over uh, Iran, and it's with the return of the Ayatollah and the, sh- the ousting of the Shah, and the, this regime that leads Iran in many ways looks back on the Persian Empire of, of before time, when it ruled the world, in some ways uh, very happy about that and nostalgic about that. And then when you actually, they read about the policy of the Persian Empire emperors, they're not that proud of that. And that's why the tomb of Cyrus the Great himself is often used as a, a, a emblem or, or a scene of, of um, insurrection by modern-day Iranians against the Iranian regime. They want to go back to the cultural pluralism of the Persian Empire before, where there weren't. Uh, It wasn't this desire to promulgate radical Islam all over the world, political Islam all over the world and all over the Middle East, where there wasn't this desire to destroy foreign religions, foreign peoples. Yes, every 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 empire, of course, wants to take over uh, territory and control. But the ancient Persians learned a whole lot more about how to rule people uh, from the failings of the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire before them. They ruled with a those empires before them ruled with a with an iron fist and basically beat those conquered peoples into submission. Um, but the Persians didn't rule that way. They allowed as they led as they were led by uh, Cyrus initially, they allowed conquered peoples to keep their religions. In fact, they actually funded the restoration programs for those religions and those places of worship that were conquered and destroyed by the previous empires. And in the case of the Jews, it was the Babylonians. 
And so their policy was extremely favorable for the Jews. They even put out all their official edicts and decrees in the, the languages of the peoples that they conquered as well. And so they actually, because of this, they because they wrote their degree, their uh, decree, sorry, in the language of the Jews, they actually perpetuated the Jewish language also, as well as the other languages of other peoples that they had conquered. And then again, we see today the diametric opposite of that. Now, you won't read everything about that uh, or a lot about that in the press today. You won't really see much of that on the news today. Uh, what we have from the mainstream uh, media today is a desire to show that the Iranians love the Jews. The Iranians love the Jews. They just hate Israel. They just hate the leadership of Israel, but not the Jews. Now, one story that's kind of following of this ilk uh, came out this week. And it was when uh, the Ayatollah wanted to clarify what he meant when they say death to America. This is from Reuters, February 8th, two days ago. Iranians will chant death to America as long as Washington continues its hostile policies. But the slogan is directed at President Donald Trump and U.S. leaders, not the American nation. Iran's supreme leader said on Friday, quote, As long as America continues its wickedness, the Iranian nation will not abandon death to America, it says here. And then he, he, continue, he continued back on Friday, Death to America means death to Trump. National Security Advisor John Bolton, and death to Secretary of State Pompeo. It means death to Americans' rulers. Now, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. As long as you just mean death to the president when you say death to America, death to Mr. Trump and his uh, foreign policy uh, gurus, then that's okay. Now, nobody should really buy this. They've been saying death to America for 40 years, long before President Trump was in power. And they've been saying death to America as well. Also, all the way through President Obama's uh, tenure as well. And he was the greatest friend, it seems, of the Iranian regime, trying to bring them back in uh, to to the community of nations. And so what do they really mean? Do they really mean death to America? Do they really mean death to Israel? Now, there are plenty of Western media outlets that are pushing this same idea. They're pushing, in the terms of death to Israel, that really it's only death to the policies of the policies pushed by Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel. They don't actually mean death to the Jews. They don't mean death to Israel, which is full of Jews. They mean death to the state of Israel in some ways, but they're not going after the Jewish people. That's at least what they say or what is being reported. Now, I was, I was wanting to do a program about um, this post-exilic period and the favor that the Persians had towards the Jews and the, the various decrees that, they, that they, um, they made to allow the Jews to come back. And we'll talk a little bit of that, about this in the second half of the program. And as I was researching for this, I just wanted to get, just, I just Googled uh, Jews in Iran to see how many are there right now. And it was amazing to me, just the number of news outlets that have reported on this, on the, on the, the current uh, um, situation for the Jews in Iran. 
and they are reporting on it on it in a very amazing and interesting way. Right now, there is though the reports say there's fifteen thousand Jews in Iran, uh, and before that, I think the I think the the Iranian government is trying to push out right now that there's twenty four or twenty five thousand. That's what Press TV did. Uh, there in Iran, a semi-official Iranian news outlet as well. Um, so they're trying to show that there's more Jews in Iran than there actually are. But it, it, this this whole idea of Jews in Iran and the fact that we have Jews in Iran is is being pushed by media outlets to show that Iran actually isn't against the Jews. It's just against the wretched right-wing government and the IDF of this state of Israel that is trying to take over the Middle East itself. That is what they are saying. Now, there is, I, I was just, I just watched this PBS, um, I think it's about 10 minutes, it's a series, or it's a 10 minute uh, video, this PBS film. I think it was on PBS NewsHour, yes, and it was, it was entitled, Despite Tension Between Iran and Israel, Iran's Jewish Minority Feels at Home. They feel at home. And uh, you, can, you can listen through all of this. And for the six, first six and a half minutes of it, there's nothing but pro uh, just pre- presenting the Iranian regime as giving the Jews complete religious freedom inside Iran. Showing how the, the Jews have equal rights inside Iran. And then at, finally... At 6:38 in this in this uh, seven or eight minute uh, clip, this is what they say. Not everything is perfect for Iran's Jews. They're still kept away from senior government and military positions. Some are believed to be closely monitored by Iran's intelligence agencies, and many people question if they're openly expressing their true feelings. And they find themselves in a seemingly difficult position. They find themselves in a seemingly difficult position because of all of that. Now, what's interesting in this program is you don't have one mention of the number of Jews that were there um, back uh, before the Iranian regime, well, this, this, uh, before the Islamic takeover back in 1979, there was about 100,000 or 80,000 Jews in inside Iran. And then as per the latest census back in 2013, there were 8,756 Jews in Iran. And this this PBS news um, uh, reporter, and this report itself, it, it states these facts as it says it. It says that there's fifteen thousand Jews, um, there's five Jewish schools, there's thirteen synagogues, and they're trying to use these statistics obviously to prove that life continues for the Jews and it's pretty good. And in fact, the Iranian regime gives them lots of benefits. And because of that, isn't this proof that Iran loves the Jews? Isn't this proof that they're not actually against the Jewish people? The fact that they have a token amount of Jews in Iran right now? About 15% of the Jews that were there, um, let's say, 40 years ago. And what's also interesting about this report is as I... um, Because I just stumbled upon this. I wasn't intending to look at it, but I clicked on it and thought it was interesting. Just how biased this reporting was, um, it it was... this, This reporting was mimicked in the Washington Post... In Deutsche Welle, in Press TV, which is not that um, surprising, in Russia Today, CNN, 
They're all talking about this. They're all using these same stats. They're all saying, oh, there's 15,000 Jews there. Wow, they let them have synagogues. And look, there's no security around this synagogue. It's so safe for all of these Jews. And they're pushing the narrative. That is the same narrative that the Iranian regime pushes. All these Western news outlets, they're just falling into the, the, the propaganda scheme of the Iranian regime. Happily, very happily. Because, of course, all of these news outlets, they love their Iran nuclear deal. Um, they don't want Mr. Trump to pull out of the nuclear deal. They love the former presidency of, of, of um, Mr. Obama. And they're against the big bad Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu. And they're against Mr. Trump. And so they're trying to show that Mr. Trump's hard policies on Iran and the rhetoric coming out of Israel against Iran's leadership... It, they're trying to show that it's unjustified because Iran loves Jews, apparently. This is um, a continuation of that clip from PBS NewsHour. They live in a country whose leaders are sworn enemies of Israel, the homeland of their faith. Iran doesn't recognize Israel as a legitimate state. Hardliners still scream death to Israel at every Friday prayers. And in international sporting events, Iran bans its athletes from competing with Israelis, who often end up winning by forfeit. But Jews here say Iranian policy is strictly against the Israeli government and its leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, not Jews or Israeli people. So that's what the Jews left in Iran actually say. And they actually interviewed a couple of them. They interviewed a couple of these Jews in Iran. And surprise, surprise, none of the Jews that they, they interviewed in Iran, like like uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, they blame him for everything that Iran's saying. They, One of them in particular said that, as a Jew, that, you know, if he fights against my country, then I'll stand up for Iran against Israel. Now, if you look at the number of these reports... A number of these videos, you'll find that the same two or three people are interviewed on every single one of them, and they're all against Mr. Netanyahu. I'm just going to quote now from an article entitled The PBS, What the PBS Got Right and So Wrong About the Jews of Iran. Now, this was written um, by Larry Kola SS, it seems, and this was written December 4th, 2018. <clears throat> it's not that long ago. And he was actually one of the first interviewers or one of the first reporters to go in Iran and make a big story about the Jews that were there. And this is what he says about the report of PBS. He writes, as PBS NewsHour put it in its story's very first paragraph, quote, the Trump administration and U.S. ally Israel often depict the Isra Iranian government as composed of anti-Semitic radical Islamists bent on destroying Israel. But within Iran... Many of the estimated 15,000 Jews say they're safe, happy, living in the Islamic Republic, end quote. And so, so you see how they set this up. The premise of it is, well, the Trump administration in Israel, they say that the Iranian government is anti-Semitic and that they want to destroy Israel. Well, that's what the, uh, the government of Iran actually says. They do want to destroy Israel. But then they say, but how can that be? How can that be? How can these Islamic, uh, how can the Iranians want to destroy Israel when there's Jews in Iran and they say that they're happy 
and again, there is uh, 15% um, or probably 20% of the Jews that were there before the Iranian Revolution are them that are saying it's still those that are there. Now, this author continues, Why the but? Both things are true. Many Jews in Iran are safe and happy, at least enough to prefer staying there rather than gamble up by gamble by uprooting themselves for an uncertain future elsewhere. And Iran is a country whose, whose most powerful forces within a divided government are radical Islamists who do seek to do what they can to ultimately liquidate Israel as a Jewish state albeit not at the cost of their own country's existence. That's what most of the Iranian leadership do and that want, and that's what they say they want. Then he writes this, as both PBS and I myself reported, Tehran's Jewish community today can boast 13 active synagogues, five private schools, several kosher restaurants, and the capital's oldest charity hospital, which was founded and is still run by Jews. So that is true. Yes, they do still have some Jews there. Most of the Jews there, or many of the Jews, are anti-Israel, though, anti-Zionist, which is interesting in its own right. But then he continues this. At the same time, Iran's Supreme Leader has published a list uh, titled Nine Key Questions About the Elimination of Israel, which makes the primacy of the armed force in that effort clear. Now, remember, they have the Quds Force, Quds being Jerusalem, according to them. And the goal of the Quds force is to liberate Jerusalem. Liberate Jerusalem. It's not free right now, apparently. They want to liberate Jerusalem from the Jews. So that is what their government says. Now, notice this. This is what Larry Kohler assess writes. And again, this he was there in Iran. He interviewed many of the same people that PBS did. But PBS decided to specifically leave some of these details out. It says this, to be clear, Iran has shown a limited appetite for actually launching any such attacks in the face of Israel's massive deterrent power. But as I explained to Zakaria of CNN, the paradox remains. Iran accommodates some 9,000 Jews, according to the community itself, viewing them in compartmentalized fashion as an age-old indigenous community totally separate from the malignant international forces of Zionism. The government may also... See propaganda value in being able to point to the community's continuing existence to international journalists. You think? With 9,000 Jews left in Iran after 80% of them have already emigrated out of the country and for them to try and push their narrative that they're actually just against the state of Israel, not against the Jews, you think they're going to start attacking those last 9,000 Jews in their country? Of course they're not. They're not, they're not um, silly. They're going to use the 9,000 Jews there. Most of them, again, are anti-Israel, or many of them are anti-Israel. At least the ones interviewed were anti-Israel. They're going to use them as a propaganda tool for foreign journalists that are lining up, lining up. Washington Post, CNN, uh, Russia Today, if we can put them in there as well, PBS, they all want a piece of this action that shows that Jews are safe in uh, safe in Iran, and therefore, it must be the policy of the Israeli state that is the reason that there is so much animosity towards uh, Israel. It's against Net- Mr. Netanyahu. It's against Mr. Donald Trump, if you put it in the terms of America. And they use these nine thousand Jews there 
as a propaganda tool and the foreign media laps it up because it just proves their narrative. Iran doesn't want to destroy Israel. Iran just doesn't like the belligerent activities and the belligerent rhetoric of Mr. Netanyahu. That's the real problem. Look, there's 9,000 Jews still in Tehran. It can't be the Iranians. They can't be anti-Semitic. It can't be the Iranian regime. Meanwhile, Iran is finding quicker, more effective ways, more effective missiles to attack the Jewish state. Uh, It's funding proxies and uh, foreign entities in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, all for the, the purpose of eventually surrounding the little Jewish state. And that's also what the Bible says that they, they intend to do. They intend to make a play on Jerusalem. The Iranians do. Biblical prophecy talks about that. The prophet Daniel talks about that. The prophet Daniel, who was an eyewitness to the takeover of Babylon by the very Persians. The prophet Daniel that received a stunning vision from God in the third year of Darius the Mede, who was a part of this Persian empire, he saw that there was going to be this king of the south, this king of the south in verse 40 of Daniel chapter 11, that would rise up and have a pushy foreign policy and try and make a play at the modern state of Israel. There's so much more to that prophecy involving the king of the south and how the king of the north gets involved. And if you want to read more about that, you can request our booklet, uh, The King of the South. It'll explain all of it to you. But we have talked about that for some time now, 20 plus years, as being radical Islam led by Iran and how they are the belligerent factor in the world. They do push other nations to act. They are engaged actively in terrorism and ballistic missile programs, not for their self-defense, not for their self-defense. They want war. They want to take over. They want to dominate and domineer. They want to push at the nations surrounding them, including the Jewish state. Now, this is just in just complete opposite, if you look back in history, to the Persian Empire of old. They were actively pursuing a policy that um, said that we want Jews living back in their homeland. In fact, anyone that wants to go back, you can leave Persia, you can leave Babylon, you can, leave any, you can leave from anywhere in the empire, and you can go back and build Jerusalem. What's interesting, back then, only a small uh, percentage of the Jews that were living as exiles, and many of the Jews had developed up their own um, industries and, and uh, towns and, and buildings and communities in Babylon and surround, the surrounding area. They didn't even want to go back. The, the, the government, the Persian Empire, was more Zionist than many of the Jews that were living inside ancient Persia. And that continues to this day, it seems, with many of the 9,000. I mean, I don't know them, so I can't make a huge generalization about that. But anciently, there were, there were plenty of Jews that did not want to come back and rebuild the land because it was going to be difficult, because it would be on the frontier. Because they would be far off without the protections that they thought that, well, that in a, in a dangerous area that you needed. And yet the Persian government, different to the Persian government today, were fully behind it. I just want to just quickly read through a passage here 
in Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5, this is a really interesting passage because it, it, it's set here um, about, I would say, about 18 years after the original returnees came back with Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah, as it says there, <clears throat> Uh, as he's referred to in, in chapter 1, also known as Sheshbazar, he came back and with him Joshua was there and they built up the, the altar as soon as they got back to Jerusalem and they got back there by the decree, of course, of Cyrus the Great. And then after a couple of years, after they finished building the foundation of the, the house of God, um, they stopped building. They stopped building. And there was a lot of adversaries in the, in the land surrounding them that did not want the Jews, a, a, a united Jewish presence um, back around Jerusalem. And so they were trying to stop the work getting done. <clears throat> and so there was a holdup. And Haggai and Zechariah, they had to be brought onto the scene by God to correct many of the Jews that had returned because they were too busy focusing on building their own houses, focusing on building their own communities. And God said, yet my temple stands, uh, lies waste. It's not finished yet. You're going to dwell in your luxurious houses, but you're not going to dwell or not going to finish my house that I need to dwell in. And so they were corrected by the prophet Haggai right in the middle of this. But they did respond. They did respond. This is what chapter 5 and verse 1 to 2 says. And we're in about 520 BC. The the king is no longer Cyrus. Um, It is now Darius. And this is what verse 1 says. Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel, even unto them. Then after they prophesied, verse 2, then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jozadak, as it's mentioned here in in, uh, the English translation, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them at the same time. And so you have this beautiful scene where finally um, people were, were, God sent prophets to people and they repented and they changed. This is actually quite rare in history, but it happened with this group. And that that stands to reason. I mean, this these were the this was a group that really did want to rebuild Jerusalem to raise the ruins. So they already had a heart that wanted to obey God, and then you had prophets coming on the scene that um, told them where they were off, and they changed and they continued building the temple. But notice what happens, verse three. And at the same time came to them Tatnay, governor on this side of the river. And Shetha Bosne and their companions, and said thus unto them, Who has commanded you to build this house and to make up this this wall? And so this was uh, the Persian satrap, the Persian governor of across the river or beyond the river. This is referring to this territory all the way across the Euphrates. So on the other side of the Euphrates from Babylon. Um, and so it included Syria, parts of Syria, Samaria, Phoenicia, and Yehud or, or Judah, that was all under this man Tatne, and we know this man Tatne. He exists. We have um, cuneiform documents from this same time that have his name written on there, calling him the governor of this territory. So we know that this is a perfectly uh, historical story set right right in the reign of Darius, because of this man Tatne being uh, being mentioned, and he comes to the Jews, and he's unfamiliar with the decree that they have. He's unfamiliar with why they're allowed to start building up this temple and building up the city. 
And he asked them, who said that you could build this up? I mean, this man, he was, he was over the top of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a district governor. And Zerubbabel reported to this man. And he's saying, well, what, what permission do you have to build? Again, this was, this was a good uh, 18 years after the original decree of Cyrus had come down. And so he tells them, Zerubbabel responds and says, um, we're, we're building because we're the servants of God and we're allowed to build. And this is how we're allowed to build. Go back. Go back and check the decrees right back to, to the emperor. Ask him. Ask him to find the original decree that was written by Cyrus that gave us permission to come and build this house for God. That's what we're doing. We have permission to do it from the Persian government. You're a Persian official. Know your history. I'm sure they said it a bit nicer than that um, to him. But nevertheless, they asked him to go back and have a look. This is what he says, verse 17. This is at the conclusion of Tatne's letter that he wrote back to Persia, back to headquarters, back to the government. After he talks about this, uh, what Zerubbabel said to him, he says, Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. So have a look, please. He didn't stop the work at this point. He just had a look. He asked him to have a look and see if this was, if the Jews were telling the truth here, if, if Cyrus did make a decree. Chapter 6 and verse 1, then Darius the king made a decree and search was made. So they had a look. And they had a look at all in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. But it wasn't there. But he wanted to make sure. So he had a thorough look. He went to the next town along where another uh, house of the rolls was. And there was found at Akmetha in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll. And therein was a record thus written. And what you have there is the original decree. They actually went back and searched through the king's house, uh, the king's tre- uh, uh, sc- scroll, I guess it is, or library where the king's treasures were. And they found it in another foreign, uh, foreign uh, city, well, a city that was now under the, uh, Persian control, but it was in media. And they found the original decree. And this is what the original decree says. And it's really awesome because it's a little bit different to the first the decree you see in chapter one. More details are added to it. This is the original decree. Verse three, in the first year of Cyrus, the king, Cyrus, the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. This is his decree. Let the house be builded and the place where they offer sacrifices and, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid and the height thereof three score cubits and breadth thereof three score cubits with three rows of great stones and with a row of new timber and let the expenses be given out of the king's house. So we're going to pay for this. For them. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that today. A Persian official telling the Jews, I want you to build build your temple. And in fact, here's the money to do it. They These were the forefathers of the Iranians. Again, a bit different to what we see coming out of Iran today. Now, verse 6, this letter continues. This is, again, the response from Darius. Not Darius the Mede now. This is Darius the Persian. He's writing back to Tatne, and he says this, after, after discussing that they found this original decree, verse 6, Now therefore, Tatne, governor beyond the river, and Shethabosnai and your companions, 
um, that'll be on the river again, be on the Euphrates. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, that is the rubber bell, and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. And I'm also going to add another decree on top of Cyrus's decree about this house. Moreover, I make a decree that you shall do uh, to the elders of the Jews for building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even from the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they may not, that they be not hindered. And so you're also going to pay them out of your own pocket, Tatne, and you're going to pay for a bunch of these burnt offerings and salt and wheat and, and uh, oil and wine so that they can sacrifice. You're going to actually pay for their sacrifices. Then verse this, verse 11, Also I made it a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house and being set up, that is this timber that was just set up because they destroyed his house, let them be hanged thereon and let his house be made a dunghill for this. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that today? A Persian ruler saying, let them build up the state. Let them use the, the king's treasury uh, to do it. And if anyone tries to stop that construction taking place, we'll tear down their house and you have permission to hang them there on the beam that they, that from their own house. What a stark contrast we have to today when the Persians are the very ones calling for the destruction of, of this Jewish state. Verse 14 says this, And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, and they builded and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, kings of Persia, all of them. Artaxerxes also, he made a decree later on that Nehemiah could build the wall. He also made a decree that Ezra could go back with about 2,000 men and they could beautify the temple and Ezra could ensure that the law was being kept correctly. Successive Persian kings or emperors supported the Jews going back and rebuilding the temple. But notice what it says there in verse 14 again. It says, I'll just read part of it and focus on something different. It says, The elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, and they builded and finished it according to the commandment of God, of the God of Israel, and according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. It was God's commandment that the Jews would go back and build this. God had prophesied that it was going to happen. Jeremiah had prophesied that it would happen after 70 years, that they would be able to rebuild this. The prophet Isaiah prophesied Cyrus by name a hundred years before Cyrus was even born, before Cyrus came on the scene, that he was going to be the one that rebuilt the temple, that told them to go back and rebuild the temple. Yeah, this was done by commandment of God. This is what Isaiah 45 verse 3 says. And I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And so whether we're studying uh, 
uh, prophecy today that proves God's existence today, or we're studying history, ancient history, that proves God's hand in world affairs. The bottom line is that God wants you to see Him. God gives us so many ways to make it obvious to, to see His existence today, I would st- it's done by both of these means, by the study of prophecy, where we can look at the prophecies concerning the modern Persians, this biblical king of the south, where we see acting uh, just like the biblical prophecy says it was, it was going to 2,500 years ago, or we, we, even, we can even look at the history. Biblical history alongside secular ancient history and show how um, those histories align in so many different ways, again, to prove God's existence. We can even study this example of Cyrus and see how God prophesied that he would come along. And sure enough, he would come along to fulfill God's purpose. God is at the center of prophecy He's also at the center of some of these startling archaeological discoveries as well that show how his word, the Bible itself, is accurate to show how this is a document unlike any other. Yeah, the history of of the Persians, of Cyrus, of of Artaxerxes, of Xerxes of Darius, it's interesting, Uh, it's inspiring uh, as well, Um, but it's much more. It's history that actually proves the authority of, of the Holy Bible. It shows that the book of books is true. It's accurate. It shows that it's authored by an all-powerful God who can prophesy things and actually bring it to pass, as he did anciently with the history of the Persians rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem or allowing that to be done, and as he's even doing today through this modern Persian state of Iran. Now, if you would like to understand more about both the history and prophecy of the Middle East, including the Persian Empire and the empires that would follow after that, please request our free booklet at Watch Jerusalem. It's entitled History and Prophecy of the Middle East, and it can be yours. All you need to do is write for it. You can write to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il asking for a copy, or you can go to our website, watchjerusalem.co.il, click on the literature tab, and scroll down to get that booklet. And again, all of our literature is absolutely free. Thank you very much for listening today. That's all we have time for. I'll see you next week.